We have this and next Sunday left in Romans 5, and then we'll be through our second of five series in Romans. If you're not familiar, it's your first Sunday with us, seeing your child involved in this or um, hadn't been here in a while. What we're doing is going through Romans, not in one long march, but in five sections with uh, what I call a, a sorbet series in between each one, kind of a palate cleansing um, move there. And so in July, we'll look at Cain and Abel. And then in August, we'll come back to Romans chapter 6 through 8, which will take us through most of the fall, where we'll talk about why grace matters. And we'll also talk about why belief itself, in in and of itself, does not change us, but we need grace-informed practices in order to change. And that'll be our our third of five uh, series as we go through Romans. Cain and Abel are, of course, Adam's sons. And you heard there in Caleb's reading, Adam. Adam is in view where we've opened Romans 5 this morning, verses 12 through 21. In these two Romans chapters, verses 4 or chapters 4 and 5 that we've been looking at, we have two Genesis figures. We have two fathers of all. Again, happy Father's Day. I had my Father's Day greeting. Abraham in chapter 4. What's he called in chapter 4? Remember that? The father of all who believe. And then Adam now in chapter 5 is the father of all who die. You might have expected me to say he's the father of all who live. And that's true. Adam is the father of living humanity. But the focus in the latter half of chapter 5 is on our inheriting death from Adam. Death through sin, as verse 12 links it, and so I call him the father of all who die. And I know it's not a pleasant thought, dying, uh, even for Christians. Our faith does not mean we welcome dying. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, Paul says that in Corinthians, that we do welcome. I know Christians who are right now dying from an illness they know they will not recover from, and thus they think about their death. They know death will take them into the presence of Jesus, and therefore they will say, it's not death I'm afraid of, but dying, the process of dying is, yes, frightening and sad. And yet, simultaneously, in that, in that phase of, of end of life, they are dwelling on the hope of their faith. But dying is not a pleasant thought. Even when we have a robust theology of glorification, the theology in this passage before us is that while faith does not keep us from dying, it does keep us from death. That is to say, Jesus keeps us alive with him post-mortem due to the living faith we place in him. So we're going to spend two weeks here in verses 12 through 21. And the way we're going to come at it is today I'm just going to put verse 12 with verses 18 and 19. I'll tell you why as we go on. And then next week we'll take verses 13 through 17 and put that with verses 20 and 21. So it's kind of a part one, part two approach. The first part of this chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the first part of this chapter we loved. And we loved it because we were told there about the love of God for us while we were indifferent to Him, 
while we were uh, hating him and everything in between. And then the latter half of the chapter, Paul goes back to sin and death, as you're looking at the passage, and the stuff of our alienation from God. And we, at this point, might wish he wouldn't. You read the second half of chapter 5 and you say, you know, Paul, tell us more about our peace with God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to quote verse 1 of chapter 5. Tell us more about how secure our hope is. Tell us more about our reconciliation to God, not our alienation from Him. That first half of the chapter made some of us in here cry last Sunday for joy and gratitude. I saw tears after the service and, and, and the first half of this chapter because uh, it tells us how much we're loved by God when we did anything but love Him. It moved a lot of you. Well, the second half of the chapter is kind of moving too, but it, it moves you in some ways more in a direction of, of sadness and that it tells us why death is in the world. And you think, do we really have to talk about this? Do we really have to talk about how death came in the world. I've got a good friend in Nashville who has a good friend in a western state, and they would talk every Sunday, both preachers. And his friend in the western state was preaching Romans. This is years ago. And my friend in Nashville asked him, how's it going, going through Romans? And he goes, you know, it's pretty good, but we skipped chapter 5. He goes, why did you skip chapter 5? And he goes, because of the end. All that talk about Adam and death through sin. He said it was just too painful to go through. We're not skipping the end of chapter 5, okay? The reason Paul goes back to sin and death in the latter part of this chapter here, death through sin. You see the linkage there in verse 12? Very key. The reason he goes back to it is because the experience of both The experience of sinning and being sinned against, the experience of losing people we love through death, this is so common to daily experience, daily human experience, and it's so anguishing and it's so traumatic that it does seem like sin and death do indeed reign. You see the word there? He uses it in reference to to death reigning. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man, Adam. But although it's like sin and death have a kind of supremacy, Paul wants to show us they don't have a monopoly. And this is so key. Because on your worst days dealing with sin and death, you will think sin and death has a monopoly. But ever since the death of death in the death of Christ, grace reigns. And that's what he says down in verse 21. Sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But a lot of unbelief, if you, if you deal with and you talk with, with people in unbelief, more than we realize, certainly a lot of aggressive unbelieving is often born out of the despair that comes from thinking sin and death have a monopoly. People who scoff at faith, who scoff at Christians for having faith, that's sort of a, it's just a pie in the sky sort of thing for you, it's just escapism. A lot of times they're coming from a place where sin and death dominate their horizon. The abuse and pain they've endured or their regrets and losses piled up or the sense that they've got dealt this, this bad karmic hand, you know, in life and, and, and they're cynical. Cynicism, I came across a, a little handy definition years ago in my reading that cynicism is, is disappointment unresolved. 
The reason Jesus keeps his people from living in cynicism and regret and despair is because of his victory over sin and death. That while sin and death is still on our horizon, sin and death do not dominate that horizon for us anymore. He does. Sin and death, each are bullies to our faith, but neither undoes what Christ has done. Sin and death don't breach what Jesus has secured for us. Sin and death are acidic, and they stain our lives, and they steal and destroy. Thank you, Adam. But the impact of Adam on human history is not greater than Jesus' impact on human history. That's what this passage is teaching. Thank you, Jesus. This passage is a kind of stair steps of contrastive statements as I'm looking at my Bible here in my Bible beside each verse from about verse 15 down to verse 19. I've written the word contrast out beside each verse and I did that because you've sort of got this staircase of contrasts and they're built out of two things. I'm going to give you two points today, two things that we'll talk about in this passage. The birth of death in the sin of Adam and the death of death in the death of Jesus. These are the two things that we're going to talk about. That's from an old 17th century Puritan named John Owen, by the way, who who put it like that in a book he wrote, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Two things today. We're going to talk about the birth of death in the sin of Adam and the death of death in the death of Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't call it the death of Jesus here. Notice as your eye falls down the passage... He calls it in verse 15, the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. In verses 16 and 17, he calls it the free gift. In verse 18, one act of of righteousness. And in verse 19, one man's obedience. But each and all of these are ways of putting, referencing the death of Jesus. Because what that death did for us is kill death. Not dying, but death. The death of death and the death of Christ. So two things today. First, the birth of death in the sin of Adam. How did we get death in this world? Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And if you've got a translation that puts a hyphen there at the end of verse 12, you notice that probably in most translations, this is because, and this is one of those places where Paul is more of a complex writer, he essentially interrupts his thought. He begins a thought in verse 12, and then he interrupts it and doesn't readdress the thought until verse 18. You look at the passage and you got therefore in verse 12 and therefore again in verse 18. This is where Paul reconnects with the thought he begins in verse 12 all the way down in verse 18, meaning verses 13 through 17 is, I'm sorry, it's the summer. I've got to make an English reference here. It's one big adjectival modification of everything that sinning in Adam means, okay? Verse 12, this is a complex thought and Paul puts it a little bit more complex. He complexifies it. I'll just create a word because I can't think of a better one in the moment. But but we'll come back to this next week in verses 13 through 17, this, this big modification of what, of what all sin and Adam means. But this is why I'm pairing verse 12 with verses 18 and 19. 
Verse 12, therefore, just to sink in the world. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now that's a simple contrast between the first Adam and Jesus is often called the second Adam. Between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the first and only God-man. The birth of death in the sin of Adam. Here's our first point. That seems to most Americans completely unfair. I had no say over Adam's life. I wasn't there to warn him, don't eat the fruit. Why should his sin stick to me? That's what's being taught here, and it doesn't jibe with an Americanized sense of fairness. It doesn't seem right to hold us guilty to something that precedes us by thousands of years. Well, let's think this out by drawing some parallels. And these are not exact parallels, but but hopefully they help you to grasp the argument. In a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate Independence Day. July 4th is roughly two and a half uh, weeks away. When Thomas Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence, he spoke for you and me all these years later, did he not? That event is the reason why we were born uh, American citizens rather than royal subjects of the crowd, you know. I mean, in England, they call a sloth a sloth. What is that about? So you don't get to grow up calling that a sloth, okay? You call it a sloth, which is the proper pronunciation of the animal. Individuals who lived well before us, this is just one example, did things that indelibly affect us today. Another example, somebody I I read used uh, fantasy sports to compare our sin kinship to Adam. He said, every human being, past, present, and future, has Adam on his fantasy team. You know, if you play fantasy football, you tie yourself to player performance. You're doing nothing but watching them play. This is Paul's argument. In Adam's fall, we all sinned. It's referred to as federal headship if, you, if you're looking for the, the theological notation, the, the reason we go to seminary to learn these kinds of terms. Federal headship. Where Paul says in verse 12, because all sin, we're just looking at verses 12, 18, and 19. There at the end of verse 12, because all sinned, he's using a certain Greek tense. I don't do this with you very often, but here it's very important to to have some working knowledge of Greek tense because this is in the aorist indicative, if you're scoring at home. And that means an action that happens in the past but is complete then and there. Our sin was complete in the past in Adam. That's what he's saying. In his systematic theology that uh, he wrote, Wayne Grudem, and don't let my quoting from a systematic theology send your eyes to glazing like the donuts that we serve here. It's impossible to understand this text, particularly verse 12, without doing some grammar and theology. It's really, when you think about it and think it out, it's impossible to to understand the gospel without doing some grammar and theology. It's a, it's a word-based faith. In his systematic theology, he writes this. When you read in verse 12 that death spread to all men because all sinned, Grudem says, 
But it's not true that everyone has actually committed sinful actions. Because at the time Paul was writing, some had not even been born yet. And many others had died in infancy before committing any conscious acts of sin. Therefore, Paul must be meaning that when Adam sinned, God considered all to be sinners in Adam. It's the only way to make sense of how he puts things in verse 12. The the way verse 12 is written, this is the only way to make any sense of this. Now let's take as an example, and I really want to be very delicate with this, the experience of death in infancy. That is the case in point for the birth of death in the sin of Adam. And I don't, I don't raise this to mar Father's Day, and I know even talking about it can create tension and anxiety for some, but please stay with me. Why do infants die? Why are some fathers and mothers bereaved that way? It's because of sin. It's because sin of sin as a state of being. But the infant has committed no sin, right? I live with an infant now, my grandson Huffman. And so um, that infant, as all infants are, is sinless in that he has committed no conscious act of sin. He's an infant. So how come then some infants die if, as verse 12 says, death comes through sin? Because they are human beings descended from Adam. And even in their state of innocence, Adam's sin guilt, death through sin, verse 12, this still applies to them even in their relative innocence. Now this is nothing you share with grieving parents, of course not. But this is why that happens, that some parents will grieve the loss of their baby. And when that happens, I have no reservations saying that infant awakens in the presence of Jesus fully alive and glorified. And that's not a consolation prize. That's not a make, that makes it all good. It's still the harshest thing somebody can go through. I'm not going to sentimentalize this as some people do with, you know, you know heaven needed a, another angel. That's nonsense and that's not helpful. It's not helpful to confront, to, to comfort people, I should say, with factual wrongs. Humans and angels are not the same beings. Humans actually have it better in glory than angels. The reason I believe infants go to be with Jesus, no matter what kind of family they're born into, is that, for one, the just mercy of God. God could condemn an infant for being part of Adam. That is an implication of this passage. And I know even to just hold that out as a possibility seems incredibly harsh to us, but hear me out. I don't believe God condemns infants for being part of Adam, though that is enough to warrant condemnation because all, all people born in this world are guilty by way of their relationship to Adam. That's the logic of this text. But, you know, if as, if as I said earlier, it's death is, and, and dying is not a pleasant thought, Where I am in this territory, the death of infants is even harsher to consider, but I'm doing so for a reason. We've got to reckon with this. That death can come even to infants is exhibit A for what verse 12 is saying about the human condition. The reason that death can come for people who have themselves done nothing wrong is because in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's how the 1690 New England primer 
put it, which was used in schools in colonial America to teach children how to read. That's how they learned the letter A. In Adam, A is for Adam, in Adam's fall we send all. Thy life to mend, this book attend. Book capitalized for Bible, B. That's how they learn B. Job feels the rod and blesses God. That's how they learn J. It was all interwoven with, with biblical lessons. But now I also base rationale for why infants who die see heaven on Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Would you look at that with me for more than a moment? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. We were in this back in January. The wrath of God, 118, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is an indictment, this passage, on all people consciously sinning. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness when we sin, as the text says. I don't believe in an age of accountability and all of that. I leave that totally to God as the judge of all the earth who does right by all. But here's the logic from verse 20 in chapter 1. If all who consciously sin have no excuse, does it not stand to reason that those who do not consciously sin, that is, infants... Some in, in, uh, in, in various uh, states of mental retardation, they have an excuse for escaping the just condemnation of God. I think that stands to reason. They're still of Adam, but they cannot believe. And so based on verse 20, I think God spares them, not dying, but eternal death. The birth of death in the sin of Adam. We're only separated from Adam by time. If a chemical company was to dump toxic chemicals in a stream, way upstream, everything downstream will be affected by those chemicals. We're only separated from Adam by time. In his action, this is biblical New Testament gospel instruction, in his action, everyone after him is Implicated, And you can still say, well, that's not fair. But we've also done it to ourselves, sin. And we know we have. We've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Guilty as charged. We've been self-righteous too. And we know death is somewhere ahead of us for this. It happens to everybody. But Adam has something to do with why both sin and death are part of human experience. He went first, and in Scripture that always means something. In chapter 4, we saw Abraham going first at what? Believing. And his belief was credited to him as righteousness, and therefore he's the father of all who believe. In Adam, we see him going first in what? Sinning. And therefore he's the father of all who die. And you can rage at Adam for this. Or you can look to God's provision for you and for me as Adam's inheritors. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. There are two alls here, and they're comprehensive. Now, we do not take up universalism from this. The idea of universalism is the idea that all will be saved in the end. And we don't believe that because we know that all will not be. 
Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. God will get many. God could get all if he chose to because his provision is sufficient for all. Paul will say this again over in chapter 11. I'll just read it to you. Chapter 11, verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is a proof text for those who adopt universalism. The idea that in the end everybody gets saved, but God's mercy on all is in his making provision for salvation through Christ for all sinners of whom many will come to him. 519 harmonizes this. God is working it out as he wills. And if you've taken the way of justification and life, these words in verses 18 and 19, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you've been made righteous and thank him for that because it wasn't, it wasn't due to any brilliance on your parts. Heaven, as I've said many times, is not a, it's not a big phi, beta, kappa, alpha, whatever it is. I forget now. What is it? Phi, beta, kappa? Alan, you were in it probably at LSU. Phi, beta, kappa? Of course. Alan says yes. <laughs> Alan's in my fraternity, so we can, we can do that to each other. But this is why faith matters. It's due to God's mercy, not due to your, your wisdom, that you saw a good spiritual deal come by and you could tell when you saw it. No, it's due to God's mercy. We'll get to that more in chapter 9. But this is why faith matters. Without faith engagement, we pass up on the provision of God. And then what happens is that death becomes our point of irreversible separation from God rather than the transition point between life in Him now and life with Him then in His presence, actually then more alive than we are now, which I know is hard to believe because alive now is all we know. But alive then is even better. I mean, what do you have right now? Five senses? If you're a mom, you have six to ten? You can always tell your kids hurt somewhere. When you're glorified, you'll have so many more. Colson and I were talking yesterday at lunch, and uh, he asked me a good question. He goes, hey, Dad, could we, can we fly in heaven? And I said, Dad, that's a great question. You know, we won't have the same limitations there. Maybe gravity may still be in effect. Gravity is a good creation of God. He made the world this way. Maybe the new earth is that way too, but but we won't have the same kind of limitations. We don't realize, because it's all we know, we don't realize in day-to-day experience just how much sin has limited and altered us from what we should have been, from what Adam was before he sinned. And nothing about Eve or he uh, changed chemically or biologically after their sin, but, but guilt entered their bloodstream, as it were, their experience, and guilt changes us. But so does grace, and grace affects a more permanent change because we were made not to live in guilt, but to live in glory. Guilt is why for now sin and death seem to have a kind of supremacy, but grace is why sin and death don't have a monopoly and will eventually entirely fade from our experience when glory overtakes us fully and we live out our inheritance from our second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our inheritance from the first Adam is why everything here and now is subject to disease and distress and destruction and dislocation. But our inheritance from the second Adam, as Jesus is also called, death died in him. The death of death and the death of Christ. Death is seemingly the one thing nobody can do anything about except Jesus Christ. I was in a bookstore yesterday and... um, uh, saw a, a, a book. I didn't know the author. I looked him up later. He's a um, professor of, of applied humanities at MIT. Brilliant guy. And he wrote a little book called uh, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. And he's got a chapter on death. He's not a believer. He's turned to Buddhism to deal with death. And, and as I peruse that chapter thinking about this sermon, it was sad to me was sad to me because here was somebody who had no firm hope because he will not he simply will not let Jesus in on the question. And Jesus is the only person who can really do anything definitive about death. And the reason he can do anything about it in a permanently altering way is because he put himself on a cross-shaped altar as a once-for-all sacrifice for any and all sin. And the way is open. Why? Because he loved us in our sin, first part of this chapter, and wouldn't let sin be the final word for you and me and so many others. If sin is the final word for us, then we will know death on the other side of our dying. But he wouldn't let us remain terminal. He would not let sin and death reign. He brought the reign of grace, and where grace reigns, glory is not that far ahead. Stand with me. Let's pray, and then we'll sing, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're grateful for this text, even though it's a difficult text. But it does explain to us why death has entered the picture and marred the beauty and the glory of what you made. And Lord, in our worst moments, it's not an explanation we need. It's an embrace. And we're, we're grateful that we get that. And that we can anticipate that in fullness when our faith is sight. Thank you for helping us in our weakness. Thank you for loving us in our sinfulness. Thank you for doing all things well. And redemption is truly that place where we find you again and again and again, doing for us but also for others, even this very day. Thank you for the work you've done among our children. Some of these kids encountered you this week in a way they never have before. And we pray that will stay with them, it will stick. It will mature with them as they go through life. That you'll do a work in the generation coming up now as children that will be a, a work of glorifying your name in bringing many sons and daughters to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.